0: Romans chapter 4, in verse 1, we have an example presented to us throughout this chapter of Abraham. Abraham the patriarch, whose name first appears in the book of Genesis. uh, Genesis 11 and then chapter 12, at the end of chapter 11 and then 12. He is the first and foremost model of faith because from him comes the nation of Israel, And God intentionally used Abraham as an example because Abraham, when he was saved by grace through faith, he was saved before he was circumcised. After he was saved by grace through faith in Christ, then he was circumcised. And this becomes significant because Abraham is the perfect example for all of us who are Gentiles and who do not know about circumcision or who are not circumcised and have uh, no knowledge of the Word of God, the revelation of God, he becomes an example because he's an example of someone who is saved without circumcision or without a ritual to save him. Then he also becomes an example for those who are circumcised which in the the Bible is typically the, the example is the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nation, the people of Israel. They are the example of those who are circumcised, and yet their circumcision, their ritual itself does not save them from sins. But they must be saved by the grace of God through their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They must believe that Jesus died and rose again for them. This is the reason Abraham is an example here in Romans chapter 4. The whole chapter is taken up in explaining correctly what we should believe about Abraham and Abraham's life. What is it that he believed? What is it that he knew? What is it that he did in his life? What were the promises that he put his faith in? What were the words of God that he believed All of this is explained here in Romans 4. And we know from this chapter and elsewhere in Scripture that whenever a single example of faith is used, it's often Abraham. Yes, many others are used too, such as in Hebrews chapter 11. Many are mentioned there. But even in Hebrews 11, the the one individual that receives the most attention is Abraham. Though many others are mentioned. So we must understand Abraham correctly to be able to interpret Scripture correctly and the gospel that is presented in the Scripture. That's what we have in Romans 4. In verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? He says, what then? He says, what then, because in the previous chapter, he has emphasized that we are not saved by doing good works. We're not saved from our sins. We don't receive eternal life. We don't have any deliverance in anything else, in anything that is a punishment on us by our works. We cannot do good works, not one good work or many good works to be saved from our sins. He emphasized that in the previous chapter. Having emphasized that, then he uses an example. The personal example is Abraham, because if someone is going to object to what the Apostle has already explained in the previous chapters, then he has to either correctly or incorrectly interpret Abraham, right? If he's going to object, he's going to have to bring up Abraham as an example. Well, Paul then does that. Paul brings up Abraham to make sure that we understand what he's talking about correctly. So, Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Usually, the expression, the flesh, the flesh is a negative expression in the Bible. It's usually a negative expression, the flesh, referring to our sinful nature, But in this context, and a couple of other places, this word, the flesh, is not a reference to something sinful, but it's a reference to the human nature, or the existence as human beings in bodily, physical form. So when he says here, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, meaning our ancestor, what kind of ancestor is he? Our physical ancestor, what has he discovered? What has he found? That's his question here. What has Abraham, our forefather, or our physical ancestor, what has he found? And why does Paul say and mean the physical ancestor, forefather, Abraham? Because the Jews were apt to use Abraham and say, our physical ancestor, Abraham, guarantees for us the favor of God, the grace of God, and we automatically go to heaven. We automatically have eternal life. We automatically are forgiven of sins. We automatically are children of God. And his point is, that's not the way it works. So he uses Abraham, the physical ancestor, to strip away from them any false belief that their physical ancestor. Uh, His physical descendants are automatically going to heaven. It doesn't work like that. To clarify this expression, the flesh, that it is not always negative, John chapter 1. Keep your place here and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14, John 1, 14. and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. You see the word flesh, the word became flesh. Who is this word in John chapter one that became flesh? Christ. It's Christ. We learn that from chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, he says Christ in verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In verse 14, then, the Word who became flesh is Christ. Now, was Christ perfect, sinless, blameless in every way? Yes. So there, there John the Apostle, when he says the Word became flesh, he doesn't mean that he became sinful like we are sinful. He, he means he became physical, a physical human being. That's what he means. Okay, another place in John, John chapter 6, John chapter 6 and verse 51, 6, 51, John six fifty one, Christ speaks again or, or speaks here, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. My flesh. He says he's going to give his flesh. And in this passage, he means his physical body is going to die on the cross so that we might have life. His physical body is going to die. That's what he means by giving his flesh over. Then one more place. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 16. 2 Corinthians five, sixteen. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to to the flesh yet now we know him thus no longer in the second part of the verse he says even though we have known Christ according to the flesh the same phrase according to the flesh is what we have in Romans 4 verse 1 we have known Christ according to the flesh means Christ used to be on the earth, and we used to see Him physically. We used to be able to touch Him with our own hands. We used to be able to walk with Him and see Him and hear Him with our own eyes and ears. That's what he means, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know Him thus no longer. By that he means, now He's not on the earth physically, for us to see Him and to touch Him. We don't know Him that way anymore because He is in heaven. Correct? Okay. Back to Romans 4. Abraham is, our, is the physical ancestor of the people of Israel, but he's stripping away from that any notion, any belief that they are secure before God because of it. And that's his argument throughout the chapter. So, verse 2. Verse 2. What did Abraham actually find? What did Abraham actually discover? What did Abraham actually know and believe? That's the rest of the chapter. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He presents a conditional statement. He presents a scenario. He presents a possibility in a conditional way, an if-then statement. In verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If Abraham was actually justified before God because he did works, he says... Abraham has something to boast about. Look at chapter 3, verse 27. Three twenty-seven, Romans 3, 27. Romans 3, 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Already the apostle has argued that we cannot boast because we are saved by work. Uh, we are saved by faith, not by works. We cannot boast because we are saved by faith, not by works. That's the way God appointed it. That's the way God orchestrated it for us to be saved, because of the law of faith. But then in verse chapter four, verse two, he says it the opposite way. He presents a condition, a scenario, a hypothetical. He is theorizing here. And he says, if Abraham was justified by works, if that's the way it actually works, if that's the way God intended it to be, he has something to boast about. If, a, if God actually intended it to be that way, he has something to boast about. But does the apostle believe this? No. How do we know the apostle does not believe it, even though he presented this hypothetical situation. He immediately answers his own hypothetical in verse 2. How does he do so in verse 2? How does the apostle, after saying, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, how does he also in that same verse say, but I'm not talking about that because that's not what actually happens. That's not what happened with Abraham and that's not what happens with us. How do we know the apostle is merely presenting it as a hypothetical? Because he says but not before God. Because he says but not before God. But not before God. Really what he's doing is he's being sarcastic. He's being sarcastic. I could present this hypothetical if Abraham was justified by faith, he has something to boast about. Yeah. But it's worthless. Because he cannot boast before God. It's worthless. You cannot boast before God that way. So he's saying, yes, we could present that scenario, but it's a worthless scenario because you cannot boast before God. He's practicing sarcasm. He's he's tongue-in-cheek here in presenting this hypothetical. It's worthless, it's useless, it's vain to try to be saved, try to be justified, try to receive eternal life by doing good works. You cannot do that and go up to God and say, God, I was a good man. God, I was a good husband. God, I was a good father. God, I was a a good citizen. God, I was a good soldier. God, I was a good employee. God, I was a good employer. I hired a hundred people and I treated them all very well. You cannot do anything like that. Or you cannot say, God, I was not a murderer. God, I was not an adulterer. God, I did not steal from anybody. You can't say that. You can't say on the basis of good works that you deserve to go to heaven. How is it that we go to heaven? Only by the grace of God, through our faith, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life which is what he mentions by the end of the chapter he's already been mentioning Christ earlier in earlier chapters and then at the end he mentions Christ again okay yes uh, it also mes- uh, mentions this in John it says truly truly I say to you who he who believes has eternal life okay it also says it in John in John and are you in John 647 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now, why is it that you brought that verse up? Um, uh, Because we've taken notes on this same side. It says, um, when I was looking at seeking for the wrong reasons, and stuff like that, what it also says in 36 is, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Okay. So like, I don't know, if you don't believe, not only by your works of what you've done, you just have to believe. Yes. Okay. So if you don't believe, you don't have eternal life, according to John 6.36. And he says it in the opposite way in 6.47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So if you do believe, if you do have faith, then you possess eternal life. Right now, you possess eternal life if you believe in Jesus Christ. This is the same argument the apostle is using in other words, in Romans. Okay, now Romans 4, verse 3. Romans 4, verse 3. But what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Why does the apostle now say, but what? does the Scripture say? Why is he saying, what does the Scripture say in order to continue his argument? Why would he do so? Because everything needs to be based from Scripture. Yes, because everything, every thought, every word, every action should be based on Scripture. That's one reason. What's another reason he's using Scripture? Why is why is he saying but what does the scripture say? He's referencing the story of Abraham in scripture? Yes, he's referencing the account of Abraham, the historical account of Abraham in the book of Genesis. He's referencing and he's quoting from Genesis 15 verse 6. 15:6. 6. Okay, so specifically, he's referencing an account of Abraham And then another reason why he says, he says, what does the Scripture say? The unity of Scripture. Okay, the unity of Scripture to show that what the Apostle is saying here is in harmony with what Moses said in the book of Genesis. In other words, Paul the Apostle is not contradicting Moses the prophet. Moses the prophet preached the same as Paul the Apostle then why would he be concerned to quote Moses and to explain to the Jews that Moses is in harmony with Paul? Why would the the apostle have that concern? Why would he bring it up? Moses has authority in their circles. Yes, Moses has authority in their circles. So anybody who comes later than Moses must be in agreement with Moses must be in harmony with Moses, cannot contradict Moses. And if he does contradict Moses, then he's a false teacher. Moses is the first written, established prophet, the first written prophet or writing prophet. He wasn't the first prophet in the Bible because Abraham was a prophet. But he was the one who first composed the words of God in written form from Genesis to Revelation. And in the history of Israel, he became the most honored and revered, indisputable prophet of the people of Israel. And so if anybody would presume to contradict Moses, then you know he's false. Then you know he's fake. Then you know he's a false prophet, a false teacher. So Paul cites Moses to correctly interpret Moses because he knows the Jews know this. What he's about to say, the Jews know about all of it, and they can't deny his accurate interpretation of Moses. So, he's not a newcomer who is a new false teacher. He teaches in accordance with Moses. Then, verse 3, the quote, "...and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness." Taken from Genesis fifteen, verse six. What is it that Abraham did? Did he do works in this verse? No, it says he believed. And in whom did he place his faith? Says God. In Genesis fifteen six, it says the Lord. And the reason it says God here is he's citing. Um, from the Greek, and because he's citing from the Greek, the Greek says God, but whether we say the Lord or God, who is the object of Abraham's faith? Whether we say the Lord or God, who is the object of his faith? Who is the person in whom he placed his faith? What's the content of Abraham's faith? What was it that God said That he believed is my question. What is it that God said? What are the, the details? What are the facts that Abraham needed to believe that God spoke to him for this text to say Abraham believed God or believed in the Lord? Answer that question for me. What did Abraham believe or in whom did he put his faith? Okay, he believed that he would become a father of many nations, 4.17. Chapter 4, Romans 4.17 says, A father of many nations have I made you. Which quotes Genesis 17.5. Genesis 17.5 is quoted in Romans 4.17. Okay, so he believed that. But what does that promise include? What does that promise entail? That if Abraham's going to be the father of many nations, what else does that promise include? Christ being born of the same lineage. Yes. Christ has to be born of the same lineage of Abraham so that the nations of the world believe in Christ just as Abraham believes in Christ. It has to include that. It has to include the fact that Abraham believed in Christ, who would become his descendant and be the Savior of the world. It must include that. Do we have evidence that the object of Abraham's faith was Christ indeed? Do we have evidence that Abraham actually did believe in Christ who would be the savior of the world, so that whoever believes in Christ is saved? Isaac. Sorry, Isaac. Isaac. Okay, in Genesis twenty-two, in Genesis twenty-two, one to eighteen, in that place, God told Abraham to put Isaac on the altar and slay him. And then it says that God prevented him from actually slaying him, right? Genesis 22, 1 to 18. And in that passage, God spared Isaac from death. But Abraham passed the test because he actually did attempt to slay Isaac as he was commanded by God to do. Now, when he received him back, What did that signify? What did that signify that he put him on the altar, he almost died but didn't die, but then he received him back from upon the altar and he continued to live his life. Isaac continued to live his life. What did all all of that symbolize? What did all of that signify? Christ. Christ. Did Abraham know that it signified Christ? Did he know? Genesis 22, 8. Genesis 22, 8. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. What did he mean by this? Who is the lamb for the burnt offering, my son? Is the lamb, the burnt offering, the ram that ended up being put on the altar? Verse 13. Look at verse 13. Isaac is spared. Verse 13 says, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Is this the burnt offering or the lamb that... Abraham knew would be provided? No, no. How do we know Abraham did not know that this ram would be provided and that that ram needed to be put on the altar instead of Isaac? How do we know Abraham did not know that that ram would appear caught in the thicket near him? Hebrews 11. Hebrews eleven tells us. Hebrews eleven seventeen to nineteen. Hebrews eleven seventeen to nineteen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten Son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. What does that say? It says. In verse 18, he he knew that Isaac was his son who would be the ancestor of Christ. He knew that, according to verse 18, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Okay? He knew that, but since he knew that, it says in verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Which means Abraham expected to have to slay Isaac, and then God would raise Isaac up from the dead because God had already told him it's in Isaac, in Isaac, that you're going to have descendants, and Christ is going to come. And people all around the world are going to believe in this Christ who is going to be the descendant of Isaac, your son. But Isaac wasn't married by this point. Isaac did not have any children by this point. He was still a single man. So Abraham believed that even if God expected him to slay Isaac all the way and kill him, that God was going to raise up Isaac from the dead. And by the way, not only raise him up from the dead. But it said, offer him up as a burnt offering. What does that mean? That the fire on the altar would have completely consumed the body of Isaac to ashes. And that God could, from the ashes, raise up Isaac from the dead. And then Isaac would marry, then Isaac would have sons, And from there, Christ would be born. He knew that. That's why it says, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Okay? It also says, from which he also received him back as a type. We know that death of Isaac did not actually occur on the altar. But when he received him back, he received him back as a type. When the Bible says type, What does type mean? Received him back as a type. A type in what sense? An example of Christ. Yes, an example of Christ. Type means a symbol or an example, an illustration of the death and resurrection of Christ. And Abraham believed that from a distance. Many years later, Christ would come into the world, 2,000 years later, to actually die and rise again from the dead. So when it says in Romans 4 that Abraham believed God, this is what he believed. God had told him these things, and that's what he believed. Now, because he believed these things, what was the result? What was the result? In Romans 4, verse 3. Romans 4, 3. The result of his faith or belief. It says, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Means what? To be reckoned. To be accounted. To be counted. To be considered. Here it says, reckoned. Another word is in verse 2, to be justified. So, what does it mean to be reckoned? When we say, I reckon, what do we mean? We mean to be considered, or to be given this credit that this is what is given to you. Righteousness. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. So to his benefit, to his benefit, because he believed in Christ, he is reckoned, he is counted, as righteous does that make sense 95 uses credited okay the 1995 of uh, edition of the NASB says it was credited to him as righteousness thank you so if it's credited to him it means we have a debt we cannot pay the debt christ paid the debt for us and whatever credit he has He gives it to us, to our account, our bank account, and now we are in the the credit, in the positive, not in the negative balance, right? And so we have now a positive balance because of the credit of Christ into our account. So we're not in debt anymore. What does this righteousness mean then? What was the righteousness that Christ had what is it that He had that now we possess because we believe in Him? What was His righteousness? What was the righteousness of Christ? Sinlessness. His sinlessness, His perfection. He obeyed for His whole life. Not one single evil thought, evil word, evil deed. Nothing in Christ, right? He was sinless, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 22. He did not commit any sin. Now, if he was spotless, unblemished, without any sin, his complete obedience is reckoned to us. His righteousness there. But there's another way as well that he is our righteousness, Throughout his life, he obeyed. But what did he do at the end of his life? What did he do for our benefit, for our righteousness, for us to be able to have our sins forgiven, our debt paid? What did he do? He died for us, he died for us yes. So he died for us. He died as a substitutionary Penalty for our sins. We deserve to die for our sins. But he, he died on the cross so that whoever believes in him will not die in hell forever and ever. Because we sin, we deserve to die or perish or be punished in hell, the lake of fire, forever and ever. But since he lived perfectly, and then since his death was not for his sins, because he committed no sins. His death, therefore, was for our sins. And that's the whole picture, complete picture, of his righteousness for our benefit. If we believe in him, if we actually do believe that he died for us. So let's believe that he died for us. Let's believe that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.